Well, fantastic. If you have your Bibles with you, um, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right there. Uh, chapter 10, if you don't have your Bibles, no worries. Um, you have your Bible probably on your smartphone. Uh, super easy, or else it's going to be on the screen. Uh, you can cheat that way. So, all right. Well, we are going to read this passage together, and then we're going to dive into a story that is very familiar to many of us. Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? And the expert answered by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. And then verse 29, but the expert wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, that is the man who was injured, passed by also on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And when he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, which was a form of currency, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Jesus then concludes by asking the expert, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. So Jesus concluded by saying, go and do likewise. Well, the Good Samaritan, this is a story, as I mentioned, that is familiar to uh, most of you, if not all of you. Even if you're not too familiar with the Bible, or even if you don't have uh, a relationship with Jesus Christ or call yourself a Christian, chances are you probably have heard, heard uh, the story of the Good Samaritan. As a matter of fact, being a good Samaritan is a vernacular in our language, regardless of what it is that you believe or not believe, and we all generally understand what people mean when they say that. When you first heard about the Good Samaritan, it may have been on flannel graph. Maybe it was through VeggieTales or McGee and Me. Who remembers McGee and Me? Oh, I love that show. But when we talk about the Good Samaritan, you know, we... It's easy to kind of go back into the, the, um, uh, the things that we commonly associate with, with the story, but the first thing that we need to do before we can really dive into the passage itself is to think about the historical and cultural context of the time. 
Not only what was actually happening right at the moment where Jesus was telling this parable to uh, the, the expert that was asking him these questions, as well as others who were around him at that moment, but also uh, the history and context of what came before that moment. So after the events of Joseph and his brothers. You remember that story at the end of Genesis? Genesis uh, 37 through 47, we have the story of Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat. You all know what I'm talking about, right? He had jo- and his brothers were, were super jealous, threw him into a pit. Joseph goes to Egypt, saves the day, yada, yada, yada. We're all good? Okay, so Joseph, after that story is done, through some kind of shenanigans and some uh, workings and whatnot, the nation of Israel is essentially broken into two kingdoms. So it's one nation, basically kind of two states. You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Now the northern kingdom adopts the name Israel, so that, that's what they're calling themselves. And then the southern kingdom adopts the name Judah, that's what they're calling themselves. Uh, again, they are, they are all Jews, but two, two different kingdoms. Now the northern kingdom, the, the kingdom of Israel, one of their main cities was the city of Samaria. And in the southern kingdom, the, one of their main cities is the city of Jerusalem. Now, after some time, after some years, specifically in 722 B.C., this is not only affirmed through Scripture, but also through uh, um, archaeological finds, Assyria conquered Israel, specifically the northern kingdom. They conquered Israel, and they took with them many of the people from from that area, from that region. Now, there were some that fled down to the southern kingdom, where that's where they stayed, but there were also a remnant, some that actually stayed in that area, in, in what was that northern kingdom. So what ended up happening then is over time, the Assyrians, which essentially they're Gentiles. Gentiles is a word for basically anybody who's not a Jew. So if you're not a Jew, then you are a Gentile. I'm a Gentile. So these Gentiles, they come in, from the, this Assyrian nation, this Assyrian, Assyrian world, and they begin to assimilate with the remnant of Jews that had remained in that area. And so then there, there becomes this, this um, uh, coagulation of, oh, I'm, that was a good word, I like that. Um, there is this coagulation of, of uh, these Jews uh, that had stayed in that northern kingdom area and these Assyrians, these Gentiles, who came with their pagan gods and their pagan rituals. And so not only did they intermarry, right, they ended up marrying one another and starting families and generations began, but also they started assimilating uh, the, the uh, Israel God, the God of Israel, the God that we see in the Bible, with also these pagan gods that the Assyrians brought into the picture. Around that same time, around 600 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah also fell, but this time to the Babylonians. They were then exiled. They were taken out of that area. There was no remnant. But 70 years later, there was a group of Jews that were allowed to return and build back the, the, the city of Jerusalem. But this began some real animosity 
Because here you have this remnant of Jews that had stayed in the northern kingdom, had assimilated with these, these pagan Assyrians, and had begun to worship not only the God of Israel, but also these other pagan gods. That became the reality. But then they saw these, these Jews then come in, come back, and stake claim to Jerusalem. The, the, like the, the ultimate quintessential city of God, right? And not only stake claim to Jerusalem, but then begin to say that we're building, we are rebuilding and establishing the nation of Israel. And so the Syrians are like, or the, not the Syrians, the Samaritans, they're like, what in the world? So they had animosity, but then these Jews that came back from the, from the captivity in, in, in Babylon, they also had animosity towards the Samaritans because they looked at them as less than. They were, in their mind, not full-blooded Jews. They were a, 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 a mixture. Muggles. <laughs> so those in the northern kingdom, now referred to as Samaritans, they resented the southern kingdom Jews for coming back and staking claim to Jerusalem and reestablishing the nation of Israel. And the southern kingdom, the, 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 these individuals now that were full-blooded Jews, they saw the Samaritans as less than. And that animosity grew and bubbled and boiled for the next 550 years. And then that brings us to the moment here in Luke chapter 10 in Jesus' time where Jesus is now sharing the story, this parable. What's also important is the geographical contextualization of that time. The nation of Israel at that time now was a little bit different. You had, you had uh, Judea, which is where the, the, the kind of the Jewish hub was. That was where the southern kingdom, roughly around where the southern kingdom of Judea, Judah, or Judea was, was, um, was prevalent before the exile. And then you had, on the north, you had Galilee. And Galilee is where Jesus spent the most of his ministry, when you're reading the Gospels and you see a lot of what Jesus did, uh, that happened, a lot of it, in Galilee. It wasn't until he began to make his journey uh, south to uh, Judea that, um, that he ended up going to Jerusalem, where he would eventually be tried and crucified and buried. But in between Galilee, which was a Jewish area, and Judea, which was a Jewish area, there was Samaria right in the middle. Now, Galilee was, was very agricultural. There weren't really towns and cities so much as there were just groups of people that lived together. But it was really spread out. But the epicenter of the Jewish community, community the, of the, uh, the Israelites, was that southern area, Judea. But to get from Galilee to Jerusalem, specifically where every Jew would want to go, you have to cross through Samaria. And because of that animosity that had grown for those 550 years, uh, that animosity between the true Jews, the full-blooded Jews, and those and the Samaritans that were seen as tainted, it remained very dangerous for any Jew to, uh, to, to journey from Galilee down to Judea and vice versa. Because to, to do so meant that you had to travel right through that area of Samaria where they hated the Jews. 
But in Luke chapter 9, Jesus, he's in Galilee, and he decides it's time to begin making that journey to Jerusalem, to that southern area. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, at the same time, as, I'm sorry, as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up into heaven, he res- resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So this then brings us to the story of the Good Samaritan. He's not yet in Samaria. He's still in Galilee. He's going to work his way eventually to the border between Galilee and Samaria, and then eventually he'll go through that area, through the towns and villages, and then end up in Jerusalem. But he's not quite yet there. He's still in Galilee, and this expert in the law confronts Jesus. In chapter 10, verse 25, on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, which was probably his first mistake, right? Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied by reinforcing the greatest commandment. You remember that? Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? It was a test. It was another uh, pharisaical test to Jesus. And Jesus replied by loving God and loving others as you love yourself. It's interesting that the question to him, to Jesus in that moment was, what is the greatest commandment? Singular. But yet Jesus gives a plural answer. To indicate that loving God is loving others and to love others is loving God, that they are inseparable. But I digress. In this moment, he reinforces it. Love God with everything and love your neighbor. But the expert, that's not enough for him, right? He wants to justify himself, it says. In verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? So we've got to break down Jesus' response because it's really important, and it shines a light on a reality that we need to address here this morning. Now, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which might at first glance seem confusing because if you looked at a map, especially a map of that time, it would show you that Jericho is north of Jerusalem. We don't really talk that way, do we? You go down, you go south, right? What it was saying, though, is it were going down in elevation because that was a 20-mile stretch from Jerusalem to Jericho. Even though you're traveling north, you're going down. You're starting at 2,000 um, uh, feet above sea level, going down to Jericho, which is 1,300 feet below sea level. 20-mile stretch that was a lot of twists and turns, a lot of rocks, nooks and crannies, and it was a very dangerous trek for anybody because it was prime hunting ground for robbers and thieves. That was a cultural phenomenon at that time. And so when, to, when you did that trek, when you did that journey from Jerusalem down to Jericho, you're taking your life in your own hands by doing so, so you're trying to do it as carefully and as alert as possible. So this man is robbed. He's robbed and he's left half dead, which is really important. We're not talking about the princess bride, mostly dead, right? We're saying he's half dead, which means that when you look at him from a glance, you would, you would possibly, if not definitively, believe that he is dead. That's an important point because it gives us clarity as to why the priest and Levite actually go out of their way. So we got to look at not only what the Samaritan does, but we also have to look at what the priest and Levite don't do, what they do and don't do. 
So the priest, he's presumably having been finished with his priestly duties, leaving Jerusalem and heading down to Jericho. Maybe he's going to his home, or maybe he's going to another endeavor, but he's more or less probably done with what it is that he has been doing in Jerusalem. And when he gets to this man, he sees him from afar, and again, because the man is left half dead, he is perceived as being dead. And the priest, knowing that the law states that if he touched a dead body, that it would actually negate him from performing his priestly duties. So because he didn't want to break the law nor be taken away from his priestly duties or, or his, maybe his, his, uh, his authority or his, his abilities, all that stuff came into effect in that moment. It was much easier to go to the, as far away from that dead body and to then walk past it and go to the next town and tell somebody else about it so that they deal with it. The Levites, similarly, Levites were basically like assistant priests. They were helping the priests, and so similarly, he's leaving uh, Jerusalem and having been done with whatever duties he was charged to do, and, and very similar to the priest, sees the dead body from afar, pursue, or the half-dead body, presumes that it is dead, goes out of his way so as to not touch that unclean body. But another thing is most likely true for both of these individuals, the priest and the Levite, is fear. Because what is, what is historically known is that it was, it was uh, customary for, uh, I don't know if custom is the right term, but it happened quite a bit, where someone would feign injury, where someone would pretend injury and be on the side of the road, seemingly injured, and a person would come by and seek to address that injury and then be uh, sieged by um, other people that are waiting behind rocks or bushes and then that person then would be injured and robbed. And so there's certainly fear because of that as well. But the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, the first thing the hearers would have noted, and this is important, when we, when we consider Scripture, especially when we're listening to the words of Jesus, when we're reading and listening to the words of Jesus, we need to ask ourselves, one of the things when we're interpreting Scripture, is what would the original hearers be thinking and feeling in that moment? So not only is this expert in the law who is definitely Jewish, but then the audience around him, remember Jesus is in Galilee, a prominently, if not exclusively, Jewish area. His audience would have been Jews, and what would they have felt about Samaritans? They would have felt a great disdain for them. And so the first thing the hearers would have noted is that a Samaritan is walking in the land of Judea, a place only for true, quote-unquote, true Jews. They would have immediately thought, ooh, that's not safe. He's just asking for trouble. Not only is he in Judea, and not in his area of Samaria, but he's actually have, leaving the revered holy city of Jerusalem. And so the listeners would have been, oh, he's, he's in for it. Something's going to happen to this guy. 
So most likely the original hearers, and especially this expert in the law, they would have reacted to this moment when Jesus talks about the Samaritan coming to the picture with a certain probably level of glee. They would have been like, oh, yes, down with the Samaritan. But Jesus takes a confounding turn, as he's very prone to doing. The Samaritan actually helps this man. Not only does he help him, he bandaged up his wounds. He took him to a safe place. He ensured for his care, and he promised to return to check up on him. He went the extra mile and then some. So then Jesus answers this expert's question with another question. Don't you just hate that? When people answer a question with another question? Well, Jesus does that all the time. In Luke chapter 10, verse 36, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert answers correctly by saying the one who had mercy on him. Now the word mercy here is is crucial. When we consider the New Testament, we have to understand that it was written in ancient Greek, and so we look at these Greek words and their meanings, and we see that the Greek word used here is elios, and it means compassion. It means pity. What's the point of all this? Isn't that the ultimate question? Whenever we consider Scripture, especially these moments, these teachable moments from Jesus, what's the point? The story of the Good Samaritan teaches us that loving others is not a question of who. It's a question of what. It's a question of what. See, so many people want to know who. Who am I supposed to be nice to? Who is it okay to beat over the head? To whom do I have an exemption with, Lord? You may not say that outwardly, but inwardly we think that. It's not a question of who. The who is eliminated. The expert wants to know the who. Who is my neighbor? It's not about the who. Jesus makes it clear that it's the all. Jesus points out that the person is not the subject of the law. What is the law? Love your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, with all your strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. But the subject on loving your neighbor is not the person. It is the act. It's about the what. It's about what we should be doing to others and for others. And what is the what? What is that? Well, Jesus states clearly that the what is being a neighbor. Right? The original Mr. Rogers. It's not love your neighbor, it's be a neighbor. It's giving mercy. Remember that word, elios? It means compassion, it means pity. So when it says the one who showed mercy, it's the one who showed compassion, who lived out compassion, who lived out mercy. And to show mercy is to have compassion for all. In spite of opposition, 
to show compassion for all in spite of inconvenience and to show compassion for all in spite of fear. To be a neighbor to all means that you will face opposition. You will face inconvenience and you will face fear. All three of those were real for each of those three characters, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. But it was only the Samaritan who stepped up in spite of opposition, who stepped up in spite of inconvenience, and who stepped up in spite of fear to love others as he loved himself, to follow the greatest commandment. But here's the thing, Jesus did not give this as a suggestion. This isn't just a good idea. This isn't just a good thought for you and I to tuck away near and dear to our hearts. In Luke chapter 10, verse 37b, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. It's a command. It's a command. When we often think, well, we often think that the hardest people to love are the people on the other side of the world that are so radically different from you and me. But that's not actually the case. Because you and I, we end up thinking and believing that the hardest people to love are people right next door to us. The hardest people to love are people in our families, the people in our circles, the people in our communities, in our neighborhoods, the people in our church. The hardest people to love are the people around you who have a different skin color, who speak a different language, who have different rituals, who have different values, who come from a different lineage, who vote for a different candidate, or who say, wear masks or don't. See, just like the, this expert as he approached Jesus, we're all looking for justification. Who's my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love? Because I'm sure that there's some people it's okay not to. But Jesus says it's not about the who. It's about the what. That is all-encompassing. It is for everybody. Love others as you love yourself. It is showing intentional compassion to every single person. It's the what. That's what it means to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Why? Why do, why do we do this? Why is that commandment even given to us? What's the point? Is it just so that we can go around in some sort of utopia, just being nice to one another? No. The point of all this, the point of God's word the point of why it is that we're even here in this moment is for the cause of Christ. As we, as we hold out the word of life, as we shine like stars in the universe, Paul says in Philippians 2, we do so with compassion. We do so with mercy to everybody. 
We do so with the word of truth in our hearts, knowing that God's word is true, that it never fails, and we are commanded to live according to it. Yes. But the way that we lead people to Jesus is not through justifying who it is that we love and who it is that we don't. It is through showing and revealing and living out compassion to every single person in every single moment. It is only then that Jesus is revealed through us. People are not going to care what you think unless they think that you care, right? It's all for the cause of Christ. That's why we do everything we do here. That's why we're, we're, we're shooting candy through a, through a PVC pipe. We're not a community center. We want ultimately people to know the truth and gospel of Jesus Christ because there are many in this area, in this community, who don't know Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, the Bible tells us very plainly that when you die, because we all will, that you will spend an eternity apart from God. But because of Jesus and his tremendous sacrifice, because of the fact that he died on the cross for your sins and for mine, and then rose from the dead, defeating death, the Bible tells us that by believing in Jesus, by making him the leader of our life and deciding to follow him, that we will be saved. And we are guaranteed an eternal existence in the presence of God. That's what's at stake. It's all for the cause of Christ. Love God with all your heart and mind and soul with all your strength and love others as you love yourself. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for the opportunity, the privilege that we have to gather. What an amazing gift this is to be in this place and to do what it is that we're doing here week in, week out. But I, just want, I don't want to just go through the motions, Lord. I want us to get serious. I want us to perpetuate this reality, this, this burning desire to make your son's name, the son of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, the son of God. We want to make him prevalent and real in the minds and hearts of the people that so desperately need him. We want to be used in that way, Lord. We want this place to be a beacon of hope. We want people to synonymize your son, Jesus, with the ministry here at North Haven Church. Use us, Lord. Speak through us and cause us to live our lives so that we're giving you the glory that you deserve while simultaneously loving and showing true, tangible compassion to everybody. We pray this in your name. Amen.